0: five four
1: three two one but who's counting right his name is major ladies and gentlemen please welcome major garrett from the nation's capital major fantastic it's the takeout this is a major achievement with cbs news chief washington
0: correspondent Major. major garrett yes cbs yes hi Major
1: Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better.
0: Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Ah, Major's always in the doghouse. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, going into its fifth year. However you find this program, podcast platforms, radio stations across this great country, CBSN, thanks for finding us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for getting the vibe of the show. You know, we love books at this show. We love to talk to people who have thought deeply and I would say profoundly about American history, the arc thereof, and where it is heading because it, that is informed by where it has been. And we have a brilliant person uh, who I don't want to waste any time in getting to, John Meacham. Uh, he is an author of many biographies. I am in the midst of reading uh, his biography of Andrew Jackson, American Lion. He is done a biography of Thomas Jefferson, of George Herbert Walker Bush, and other books. John Meacham, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. I like that you you interviewed brilliant people, and failing that this week, here I am.
0: <laughs> All right. Okay. We, we are chock full of false modesty where John Meacham is concerned. John, <laughs> um, one thing I need to help my audience understand, because I want to have things cleared up, you uh, endorsed, if they don't remember, President Biden at the Democratic Convention, and I don't want to get into the mechanics, but you have been part of the conversations that have led to a couple of significant speeches given by candidate Biden and President Biden. True?
1: True. I'm happy to be as transparent as you want. Uh, I um, uh, endorsed uh, Biden in the Washington Post in March or April uh, of last year um, because I believe that democracy was and is in an existential crisis. Uh, Democracy is the exception to the history of the world, not the rule, and I believe that uh, President Trump represented an ambient, uh, clear and present danger uh, to the system that I believe in deeply. Uh, I'm not a Democrat. Uh, I voted for both, as you mentioned. You know, I'm George H.W. Bush's biographer. Uh, You and I are talking because when I was a kid, Ronald Reagan kind of captured my imagination. Uh, but Joe Biden's been a friend uh, and I thought he represented the best chance to get through that. He, at his invitation, I spoke at the convention and on occasion over the past three, two, three years, uh, he's asked me for some help on speeches and I've been happy to do that.
0: And you were, for a very long part of your early career, a journalist. You were managing editor, I believe, of Newsweek. Uh, How does the role of being that close and endorsing change your ability, if at all, and maybe it doesn't, to observe things and offer what you might regard as still penetrating observations about the times in which we live?
1: Well, I don't know how penetrating they are, but I don't believe there's such a thing. You you, you probably have more interesting thoughts on this than I do. I don't really believe there's such a thing as neutrality. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's fair-mindedness, which is different. right? Uh, And so... I'm not a journalist anymore. Uh, I was for, as you say, for a long time, from the time I was 18 years old until I was about 40. Uh, And then like Dante, I was in a dark wood. (laughs) I was in print journalism. So you can imagine that was a pretty dark wood. Um, So I, look, I, I don't think, let me put it this way. I think that we all have a moral obligation to do the best we can in the public sphere, in the sphere of citizenship. For me, I have a, and this is not false modesty, I have a pretty limited set of skills. They're, they're, I like them, I, I've honed them, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're what I do. Uh, and for most of my life, I've been like you, I've been fascinated by presidents and, and presidential rhetoric. And in an odd way, uh, a lot of these tributaries intersected in the last uh, couple of years. Where someone I respect and like, uh, and we share a fairly common view of the country, which is that we are an imperfect union, but we are attempting to be better. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to replace it with something, what is that? Uh, so that, that so we have kind of a shared sense of values and, and, and vision there. And I will say, I, I think that. Uh, Seeing history unfolding up close—if anything—it's going to make me a more, hopefully, a more insightful biographer. Because what you also learn is that uh, most conspiracy theories are uh, give everybody too much credit. (laughs) You know, (laughs) this is, as you know, this is a human undertaking, right? And you know, sentences that. uh, endure are often written at the last minute or come out of somebody's head.
0: Right. They, know. I think
1: people should know that I'm for Joe Biden.
0: Right. And conspiracy theories, uh, and this is a brief tributary, we'll get back to them in a minute, uh, assume a kind of mechanistic quality and a machine quality to human behavior, particularly in politics, when, yes, there is some intentionality, but the machinery is often incredibly random and affected enormously by luck and external events. Unquestionably. Uh, you know,
1: Lincoln said, and I'm, I'm doing Lincoln right now and I, I, I'm arguing with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said in uh, 1864, heading into reelection, he wrote a letter to Kentucky, the Kentucky editor, Kentucky, a big, big state for him, uh, because if it had gone to the Democrats, you know, uh, it was a Democrat, could be a Democratic stronghold in that year. He said, I claim not to have controlled events, but fully admit that ev- events have controlled me. N- not quite right, uh, because that diminishes human agency. Yes. But not to get overly theological on you or at the top, but basically the way I view the world, which is in no way original, is there's a certain capacity we all have to nudge the world, uh, whether it's in our neighborhood or in our nation, one way or the other. And the examples of that are innumerable, right? I mean, if the great, the great one, of course, is in, uh, the winter of 1931, uh, Winston Churchill walked out on Fifth Avenue and was right. left instead of right.
0: As his native-born sense would.
1: Right. And he was hit by a car. Mm-hmm. Now, had he died, mm-hmm. would the 30s have ended up the way they did? Precisely. Franklin Roosevelt was nearly assassinated in December 1932 right. in Miami. Right. The mayor of Chicago was killed next to him. Would the 30s have ended up the same without Franklin Roosevelt? Uh, so, he, Human agency matters. I mean, you can't do what we do for a living and believe it doesn't. Right.
0: No, of course. But agency is one thing. A conspiracy of several interlocking layers in which everything meshes and meshes not just once, but over and over and over and does so in absolute fidelity silence for decades, uh, doesn't ring true to me, never has. The more I've observed Washington, the more I've watched it, it makes me laugh more and more, actually. I I find it more and more comical the longer I observe the fragility, the frailties, the fungibility of human nature, and just how random things are. Um, one other thing before I want to let you go I want to tee this up in the second segment, because uh, I think it's an important conversation for us to to launch into. You mentioned and through your books and through so many books in American history, there is this tension between aspirations in America and wrongs that were embedded in the country. And right now, I don't need to tell you, John, there is a massive, intense conversation in this country that we need to excavate much deeper these original flaws And hold them up to much greater inspection and be much less charitable to ourselves and to our forebears than we have been. There is a tendency to believe now, at least part of the conversation around history in America, that we glossed over a lot of things that were not just wrong, but offensively wrong. And we have got to reckon with that. So as just a way to sort of set that up for you, we're going to go to break now, but I want you to Root on that for a second and give me your thoughts as we come out the other side of the break. I'm Major Garrett. John Meacham is our special guest. We've been trying to work on this for several weeks. I'm so glad I'm talking to him. More with John Meacham. Conversation on race, culture, history, America, everything else. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Back for segment two in just a second.
1: When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy— From CBS News, this is The Takeout
0: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. John Meacham is our special guest. He has a podcast. A lot of people do. You know, it's the cool thing. Trust me, I know. I'm a cool cat. Uh, it's called Fate of Fact. Uh, before I get to that question, I teed you up with John Meacham. To tell my audience what Fate of Fact is all about. Fate of Fact is...
1: My best opinion, uh, my most historically thought-out opinion about how the Republican Party has descended into fantasy, conspiracy, and falsehood. And as I said, I'm I'm not a partisan. I know this seems partisan, but right now it's not a both sides problem. Right, the left may go crazy and may become dissociated from reality. But if so, it's going to be this afternoon. It's not this morning. Right, it hasn't happened yet. And My theory is that, to to torture a metaphor for a second, is there was a lot of gasoline on the garage floor of the Republican Party, and Trump was a match. And that gasoline, I believe, is partly spilled because of almost 90 years of a kind of growing disenchantment with the way Republican presidents actually delivered for their conservative base. So Dwight Eisenhower comes in. He's supposed to undo the New Deal. He doesn't. He appoints Earl Warren. He appoints Brennan. Uh, you get some of the Supreme Court decisions that continue to animate the right. Richard Nixon uh, proposes. you know, does the EPA, thinks about a family income. Uh, right. A univ- a universal
0: basic income detente with the Soviets, et cetera, et cetera. China. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Ford carries that on. And Reagan comes in, of course, as the representative of the conservative corrective wing. And he does cut taxes in 1981. And then he raises them five times. Mm -hmm. Federal spending goes up. Deficits go up. He negotiates with the Soviets. George H.W. Bush, of course, is the full embodiment of this, uh, of running to the right and governing from the center. And George W. Bush will tell you, uh, you were there, yep. that there's a direct line between TARP and Trump.
0: Oh, no question about it. And and the Tea Party didn't just grow out of a reaction to Obama. The Tea Party grew out of a reaction to George W. Bush and compassionate conservatism in the sense that in the latter years, with you take his proposal for immigration reform and spending, much of that conservative bedrock grassroots, Republican right was already dissatisfied with Bush, and and Obama's tendencies amplified that sense of animosity.
1: Precisely, and so race, economics, culture, the court uh, are all these elements that have sent the Republicans in a flight from fact. And uh, I hope that if you offer a diet, you know you, you can't treat something if you don't diagnose it. Mm-hmm. So that's what i'm trying to
0: do understood so i teed you up before we went to break about this reckoning that uh there are those uh who judge historians biographers just the whole to- the story that america has told itself that it is too glossy it is too happy it simply does not reckon with things that were systemic institutional brutal and cruel and that until we do that we can't really understand our own story and prepare ourselves for the future. I'd like your larger thoughts about that conversation.
1: Well, I think it's unfortunate
0: that particularly
1: in the historical world, the tension between 1619 and 1776 and 1787, 1865, 1965, I I think that's an understandable, but lamentable uh, war. And I I wish it weren't. I think that these are parts of the universe of reality. 1619 is inherently who we are, by the way, the same month that the white lion arrived with the first enslaved people, the first representative assembly was held at Jamestown. Yes, exactly right? so the same here. time.
0: It's almost the same month.
1: Yeah. Uh, August and September, August
0: 19. and September,
1: 1619. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, you, you you offered an interesting dialectic about candor and charity. I think we have to be candid mm-hmm. because if we aren't candid, we aren't rooted in reality. And then we can decide how charitable to be to ourselves. Right. But that immediately raises the question of who is ourselves. Right. Right. Uh, now, I am a boringly heterosexual white Southern male Episcopalian. Things tend to work out for me in this country. No doubt. Right? Mm-hmm. But without an awareness that I benefited from and still do a system that an economy, a culture, I live in Tennessee, I grew up here. Uh, you know, we, we were in many ways built on the labor, the uncompensated labor right. of enslaved people. Uh, folks who looked like me held desperately on to clung desperately to political power by disenfranchising folks who didn't look like me. So it, it's a big, important, not just conversation. I hate it when we have conversations yes. about things. It's a big, important, possible reckoning. Uh, you know, people see re- To have a reckoning r- implies that there's going to be a result out of it. And I, what I hope is that this interest in where did we start and how did we develop and who's we, Will be more illuminating than uh, divisive.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: probably a pyrrhic hope, but it, I'm going to. I'm working on it. You know, yeah, right. uh, I work on it in my teaching. I work on it. You know, writing and talking. And um, I'm not sure how it comes out, but I promise you this: we have not seen the last of the white reaction and backlash to a changing demographic country. Mm-hmm. And my wife asked me we just the other day uh, we were talking about this, but why, why, why would George Floyd, the tragedy of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, why did that prompt what it prompted? But say Trayvon Martin did right, right, and it, of course, if you think historically, you go back and you think of the timeline of civil rights stuff. Why didn't Emmett Till? Right, to exactly. That, right? So you, you, so to some extent, you don't know where you are until you're through it. Precisely. Um, and I think that the, the other key element here is that this is a demographically changing country. And, so, and that's why so many white folks are reacting the way they are, right. is they feel hegemony slipping away. And so it, to some extent, the Trump era is an affirmation of the basic demographic reality. And I don't think it's the last spasm, but we live in a different country than we did in
0: 1965.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's hope we live in a different and better country than we, than, you know, in 2035, than we do now.
0: Several weeks ago, a guest on this program, someone I know you know and admire, Ron Brownstein, was on talking about his book, Rock Me on the Water, which argues that the cultural shift of the early 1970s located almost entirely in a several mile radius in Los Angeles transformed the cultural landscape of the country and that culture leads politics. But that just as Archie Bunker became a symbol of a kind of no, I won't take it anymore hostility among white America to demographic and political and tensions going across the culture, then Trump is an extension of that. And just as whites, motivated by Nixon in 68 and 72, saw something was changing in their country, so did All the Trump supporters I saw and met and interacted with at more than 75 Trump rallies in the 2016 campaign. And I've said this on this program many times, the more psychological politics becomes, the more dangerous it becomes or unstable it becomes. I'd like your thoughts.
1: Richard Hofstetter made this point incredibly well. Hofstetter is one of these guys that depresses me because he said everything that needs to be said better than I ever will. And it was 70 years ago. Uh, He wrote an essay, which I'm sure you know, called The Rise of the Pseudo-Conservative and it was in the late 50s, early 60s, and it was the Trump vote, right? And, and what he was talking about was when politics is a mediation of interests, it's more rational. When it is a battle over status, it becomes irrational. And that's where we are. And one of the fascinating things, and this has been true in the South for generation upon generation upon generation, is that culture and race have in status have divided a natural alliance based on economic interests, right? Black folks and white working white folks have more in common than they have a, a part. but the, the diabolical insight of so many white segregationist politicians was divide them with power and status Because the working white folks, you can tell them the only thing you've got is you're not one of them. Right.
0: Right. That is the voice of John Meacham. John, I need to jump in and take a break. But on the other side of this break, we'll continue this conversation and get on to all the more news of the day. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Back for segment three in just a second.
1: CBS News. This is The Takeout
0: with Major Garrett. Continuing our conversation with John Meacham. John, where did you grow up? Chattanooga, Tennessee. I often think to myself that Ohio gets a lot of love in terms of its outsized influence on presidential politics and America. But I think two other states in that general area punch way above their weight and don't get enough credit. Tennessee and Kentucky.
1: Well, they were loyal. They, they have for a long time. Uh, it was true during the Civil War. Right. Uh, uh,
0: they, they, that was the frontier and the frontier spirit and the people who flowed through there affected 20th century, 19th century American life in profound ways, it seems to me.
1: You know, it, it's a great point. One of the things that I want someone to write a little book about uh, is how is it that in 1990, Al Gore ran virtually unopposed for reelection to the United States Senate from the state of Tennessee mm-hmm. And exactly 10 years later, almost to the day, it cost him the presidency because he lost the state. Right. Right. That's it. I mean, if you can tell that story, that's it. Uh, when I was growing up, I was born in 69, um, grew up on Missionary Ridge, a Civil War battlefield, about three miles from John Ross's house, Chief John Ross, and about 500 yards, 600 yards away from Braxton Bragg's headquarters. Interestingly, by the way, to show the complexity of all this, it was not a lost cause childhood. Uh, the monuments where I grew up were union monuments because they won yes, and they had money. Right. Yes. So the there's a Sherman reservation. There's an Ohio reservation. Mm-hmm. There were all these, you know, on Wisconsin. It, that's where, that's where Douglas MacArthur's father won his medal of honor. Was a, not far from where I grew up literally um, when he was 17 years old. Anyway, I, so yeah, we're, we had nine representatives. Uh, it was seven to two Democrats. Uh, one black member of Congress, Harold Ford, senior Yep, yep. In Memphis, uh, my district. So there was an upper East Tennessee district yep. with unionist territory. There was an Oxford district. They were Republican. And then my district, which began heading toward, uh, West middle and West Tennessee, it was a Democrat, uh, and it flipped in 94. Yep. And the fellow who holds that seat now is a full-on stolen election guy. Yes. Uh, so it's seven to two the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, my senators growing up were, let's see, Jim Sasser, Bill Brock, Howard Baker, Al Gore. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's who we have. Exactly. So you, you see the shift
0: there. I, I want to get your thoughts briefly before we get to Andrew Jackson on uh, Facebook's decision it's Supreme Court so-called decision that uh, Facebook was correct to deplatform former President Trump, but ought to review it over the next six months. Not just the decision, but what do you think this has in terms of implications for the way we converse or can't converse on these platforms with big, prominent people?
1: I think that I, I go straight back to you can't yell fire in a theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, a theater is a is a privately owned usually a theater is a privately owned but publicly used space uh that's not a bad way of thinking about
0: you can't even do it in a community theater
1: yeah yeah so i think that with power comes responsibility and we came as close to losing the country as we know it on january 6th as we have since the civil war and i say that with all with no hyperbole I mean, they didn't even, the Confederates didn't even get into the Capitol right. during the Civil War, but they did three months ago.
0: Yes. A Confederate flag never was carried inside that sacred space during the Civil War. It was on January 6th. Right.
1: And so I don't want to be overly simplistic about it, but full stop.
0: Right. 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 And right. so. And I will tell you this, not- John, I will tell you this. This show and, and me for the rest of my life is in the never forget category. Good. Never for forget. I will never let this go. Ever, ever. And you're right.
1: And and this goes to what you were asking about a second ago too. One of the things about America is we move on very quickly, and that has advantages. Yes, but it also has disadvantages. It has virtues, but it has vices. We we did not confront the legacy of enslavement because of frankly because of a Tennessean because of Andrew Johnson. Right. Uh, you know, you, you, we were talking about human agency. I think, I, I think about this a lot. What if Lincoln had not dumped Hannibal Hamlin? Right. As vice president. Right? Yeah. So you, you would have had a main Republican mm-hmm. not vetoing the Freedmen's Bureau, not vetoing the Civil Rights Act, not opposing the 14th and 15th Amendments. You know, it, it's the stuff matters. And so I think, you know, it's, it's not as though Donald because Donald Trump doesn't have easy access, as easy an access to uh, to folks attention doesn't mean he doesn't have the right to do it. He just forfeited that right by
0: abusing. Right. Uh, Very quickly, um, it is said often, John, that, hey, 74 million Americans voted for Trump and they need to be respected. Uh, A lot of people voted for John Kerry in 2004. Uh, He grew the popular vote that Al Gore achieved in 2000, but if I I remember correctly, by more than 7 million votes, a substantial increase, but nobody worried about them because he still lost the popular vote and he lost the Electoral College vote and we moved on. There's this persistent plea among the Trump supporters to be seen and be recognized and be, if not coddled, elevated to some superhuman status because there were more of them than there were in 2016. I would like your thoughts on that. Well, they
1: they should be respected.
0: Of course. But they
1: lost. (laughs) That's 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 the way competitive democracies work. So what did the Democrats do in 2000 and 2004 and 2008, 2012 and 2016? Two of those, by the way, they won the popular vote. They gathered up their wheat and they got ready to run the next time. Right. They didn't say, I mean, maybe some people did, but it wasn't particularly serious. Uh, They didn't say that they didn't deny the
0: basic reality in front of their face. Right. Some people did, but it wasn't the fulcrum of the party. It is the fulcrum of this party now. And that brings us to Liz Cheney. Uh, Your thoughts about this now clearly internecine battle that is going to oust, in all likelihood, the number three House Republican Re-elected and then elected again just a couple of weeks ago by this very conference that now appears on the precipice of ousting her because she says something they consider to be rude, which is the election was fair and square, and anyone who says otherwise is perpetrating and propagating the big lie. So,
1: if you don't believe in irony, the fact that all these folks—and I will just—I'm not—I don't mean to drag you in—but the fact that a lot of folks who do what we do for a living are rallying to Liz Cheney's defense Mm -hmm. proves that God has a sense of humor. (laughs) No doubt. Okay. I've always said, first
0: and foremost, God is a humorist.
1: Yes, exactly. So here's a, here's a story. I haven't told about this uh, in a long time when I was, I worked on and off on the biography of George HW Bush Mm -hmm. for 15 years, 17 years like that. And While we we did the interviews, we were supposed to be posthumous, but he wouldn't die for a long time. (laughs) But toward the end of his his son's administration, uh, President Bush, we were sitting in his office in Houston, I think, starts talking about the Cheneys. And I probably ask, I guess. And he said, you know, Liz and Lynn, iron ass, iron ass. And that was his sort of WASP term for tough and inflexible, mm-hmm. right? And so, and one of, my, one of the things I wanted to do because he was of a certain age, right. uh, I was not going to take it back because it was on the record, but I did go back to him right before I published and said, you know, I'll drop a footnote if you've changed your mind. And he said, mm-hmm. no, I said it. <laughs> and so I called the Cheneys and told them. And to their everlasting credit, they had uh, Liz and Lynn had T-shirts and hats made up with the word "iron ass" uh, for the Cheney women. And here's what I think. I think that George Herbert Walker Bush is in the men's grill in the sky, loving that the iron ass Liz Cheney is standing on principle. And i it probably hurts her for me to say something positive about her, but i this is a Margaret Chase Smith moment. She has embraced it she's going to, I guess she's going to lose this uh, leadership position, but you know, you can, you can decide whether you want to be Margaret Chase Smith or Joe McCarthy. You can, you can be John Lewis or you can be Bull Connor, right? You can be Donald Trump or you could be John McCain, Mitt Romney, George Bush. She's made her choice and God bless her.
0: That is the voice of John Meacham. I'm Major Garrett. Stay with us.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
0: with Major Garrett. Having a great time with John Meach, and I hope you are too. Uh, John, American Lion is your uh, amazing book about Andrew Jackson. Uh, You know as well as I do that uh, not just President Trump, former President Trump, but those around him like to think, oh, there are lots of comparisons, and they're cut from the same cloth, and they were disruptors, and that's the thing that they have in common. Do they have very much, if anything, in common?
1: Some things, sure. so another quick Bush story about this. So in 2017, uh, March, I think, Donald Trump announced, President Trump announces that he's coming down to the Hermitage. Yes, right? yes. Not not far from where I live. Uh, you may have been with him um, and he's going to embrace Andrew Jackson. Right. And, you know, presidents see as they wish to be seen. Mm-hmm. And so I have a sub sub interest in what presidents say about other presidents, because it's always inadvertently revealing. And so he really wanted to be going to be Jackson. As you know, he got picked this up from Steve Bannon. Uh, right. Interestingly, I think during the transition, uh, I don't remember this being part of the campaign. I think it was kind of a late, uh, a late thing in 16. Anyway, so I write. So I'm, you know, I'm a Jackson biographer. I live in Nashville. So I decided, well, I think I'll write an open letter to the president saying, welcome, delighted you're here. Uh, If you're going to embracing history is great, but if you're going to embrace Andrew Jackson, don't just embrace the crazy parts. Right. Jackson was for all of his sins and they were formidable. He was a unionist. Uh, He believed that it was one great family. He believed that we had to stay together by standing up to South Carolina in 1832, 33. He gave us an additional 30 years to form what Lincoln would call the mystic Chords of memory. And so I wrote this and I sent it to the the paper in Nashville. And in a, what I thought was a very interesting and kind of courageous editorial decision, they ran it on the, enti- it was the entire front page of the paper. Nothing else on the front page, but my letter to, to Trump. And the next day, it had no effect, whatever, of course. Uh, the next day, I'm walking into lunch, and my phone rings. And it was George H.W. Bush. And he was in the hospital a lot that winter down mm-hmm. in Houston. So his staff was printing stuff out for him. They right. gave him this letter. He called up, he said, How you doing? I said, I'm fine, Mr. President. How are you? He said, I'm fine. He said, I loved your letter to Jackson. And I thought, Oh, shit, you know, the old boy's losing it, right? He thinks I'm writing letters to dead people. So I said, Thank you, Mr. President. I'm glad you're doing better. Um, you know, actually, that was a letter to Trump about Jackson. And without missing a beat, the old man said, Yeah, but Jackson will pay more attention. <laughs> so that kind of tells okay, you. Okay, that's
0: genuinely funny. I mean, yeah. that's, that's really good. And then he hung up. He thought of the joke. He wanted to deliver. He said, so, yeah, that was it. Uh, anyway, so- Drop yeah. the mic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From right. the hospital at an advanced age, still has it. It was
1: incredible. Uh, so,
0: look, Jackson
1: represents the worst of us and also the best of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are not div- one of my tests for monuments, is that the first question has to be, were you devoted to the creation of a more perfect union? If you were for ending the constitutional experiment, then I don't think you should be commemorated on public property. So that would exclude all Confederates. Uh, Jackson, Madison, Jefferson, Washington, Monroe, they were, John the Adamses, they were deeply imperfect They held views on race and gender and identity and economics that are repugnant to us and were repugnant to some in real time. But then you but that's when you start to have the conversation. If you were if you were trying to keep a process of amendment and a a possible amendment and adjustment going, then I think you have a place in this conversation and don't believe me on this. Believe Frederick Douglass, who said there is no soil more conducive to gro- the growth of reform than American soil. Douglass was against the garrisonians, who the, aboli- the, the hardcore abolitionists, who were burning the Constitution. He literally burned a copy of the Constitution and said it was a pact with the devil. And Douglas said, no, at least we know how we can fix this here. If it, re- if it reverts to a state of nature, who knows what happens.
0: And that is, I think, something that flows through your writing and writing of others about America, that America doesn't guarantee anyone, though certain Americans had advantages built into the system from the beginning, any absolute destiny, but it does give the best, most durable, and most flexible roadmap in pursuit of whatever destiny you may pursue. That's probably a gross oversimplification, but it's not bad. Well, you know... I get dinged occasionally
1: for being overly sentimental, mm-hmm. uh, too soft, I guess, on the, on the, on America. I, I don't, I, I reject. It. It's interesting. I don't, I, I listen, uh, but holistically, what else are you going to do? And we live in a country where, as you just said, 74 million people after COVID, after everything, thought, yeah, I want four more years of that. Mm -hmm. This is a big, complicated, fallen, frail, fallible, disputatious country. And I'm not saying that what we get to is perfect. What I am saying is that we have to strive for the good. And, and again, don't listen to me. Right. Listen to John Lewis. For instance.
0: Exactly. And if you were to try to tap someone on the shoulder and say, have you ever thought about Andrew Jackson? And they said no. And you said, well, you should think about these component parts of modern America that at least in part we owe to him. What would you say?
1: The populist instinct, mm-hmm. uh, the instinct that there are elites that will, because of human nature, seek to maximize their advantage. The advantage of the few to the advant to the disadvantage of the many, natural impulse. It's what aristocracies and autocracies have done since the first confederation of cavemen. Um, the uh, the plus side was a an insistence on the union. The tragedy is he was a unapologetic white supremacist. Mm-hmm who wanted to create a country that was free of enemies. And to him, the enemies were not simply the British, but they were also Native Americans and the the subjugation of of enslaved people.
0: You know, he also, as as I read in your book, uh, took the popular mandate to say, as the president, I'm elected by all, and therefore I have a stronger say than presidents historically had in relationship to Congress, and therefore the powers of the presidency?
1: Yes. And it drove John C. Calhoun crazy. Calhoun might have said the same thing if he'd been president. It's like, <laughs> like, like Jefferson. And, if, if Alexander Hamilton had bought Louisiana, Thomas Jefferson would have exploded. Uh, so everybody's against executive power until they have it. Uh, Indeed. Indeed. Jackson was, I think, the architect, really, of of the modern presidency. He understood communications. He would have been great on Twitter. You know, he would have used all caps, uh, you know, and he had the hair. And he, no, there, there's, plenty, there's plenty there. Um, and it was a I mean, one one distinction was Jackson was. I think the most, to me, the most important distinction in the Jackson-Trump stuff is that Jackson obeyed the rules of the elections, right? So in 1824, he wins the popular vote, loses, does not get 51% of the electoral college, it goes to the House. Now, he created a really good hashtag, corrupt bargain, yep. but he talked about it from down here, he didn't lead an insurrection no. in Washington.
0: and and 4 oh, years later and 4 he, years later he won
1: right exactly so that to me that's a big thing and again i'm not hold- let let me be clear i'm not holding up andrew jackson as oh my god if only we could have andrew jackson again but he is the most important american leader white American leader between the
0: founding and the civil war. That is the voice of John. If you don't grapple with him, you don't understand the country. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, That is the voice of John Meacham. For our radio audience, we have to say farewell for those listening on podcast platforms and watching on CBSN. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. For the radio audience, we'll see you next week.
1: From CBS News. This is the Takeout with Major Garrett.
0: John Meacham is our special guest. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I am Major Garrett. Uh, John, uh, I just want to commit you to another one of these because about six months from now, I want to have another session with you, and then maybe another six Uh-oh. months after that, and another. I just want to have a, like basically a, a session with you every six months if I can. Is it like? Is it like maintenance therapy? I think it is. I think it is. Oh, uh, so uh, we like to think about this as the fun and game segment of this podcast, where we lighten things up ever so slightly weave our way through uh, the various eddies of pop culture so i have three questions that i ask every guest on the show we're on our fifth year so the answer is delight our audience because they learn a little bit about whoever we've been talking to so in whatever order you wish to answer them here are the three questions most influential book in your life or one of the most influential book meaning you read it and it took you into a different direction it touched you in a certain way either spiritually or intellectually Uh, Your all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and uh, say you're driving uh, across Tennessee or you're flying on a very long flight and you really want to have some music that gets you right where you live, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to?
1: Oh, great questions. Uh, The most influential book is actually plural. It's two, and I can tell you exactly when it was. It was the summer between my sophomore and junior years in high school, and I read All the King's Men, Mm -hmm. Robert Ben Warren's great novel. And then I read Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas's The Wise Men. Yep. And then I started again and read them both again. When I told Evan that, when I was interviewing for a job with him 15 years later, he said, you must have been a real loser. So <laughs> it was true, but it, I didn't think he needed to mention it. Uh, yeah, That's no, the godfather no, to my daughter. Not, but anyway. not needed
0: to be rubbed in.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So... Uh, all the King's Men and, and The Wise Men were, were, were vital to me. And, and, and for my audience,
0: quickly uh, describe what the two books are about.
1: Oh, uh, so All the King's Men is probably the great American political novel. It's functionally about Huey Long yes. uh, and uh, kind of philosophically meandering, but... If you love, let me put it this way: anyone who's listening to you and me, yes. knows all the kingsmen exactly, and probably knows the wise men. Uh, and the wise men was the portrait of the six architects of the post uh, World War II era: April Harriman, Chip Bolin, Atchison, right. uh, et cetera, uh, Ken and others. Um, movies are great. And by the way, I should also say anything by Anthony Trollope should be read and reread. Uh, I, I I go back to Trollope uh, two or three times a year. Um, you know, because just because of the way we're talking, one of the most important movies, I think, and it te- it's, 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 it sounds odd that it, it might sound odd, but for the moment we're talking about is The Good Shepherd. Do you remember that? It was about the, well, it was basically about Richard Bissell, mm-hmm. uh, Matt Damon, Robert De Niro played right, right. Uh, uh, Bill Donovan. Uh, Angelina Jolie is in it, so therefore it's just good. Yes, uh, as a, as a basic principle. But there's this moment. Uh, it's about a mole. It's about the CIA mole hunting, and I think about it a lot. I I talk about it in, when I teach. There's a moment where Joe Pesci is is a uh, Cuban exile, and he's asking the the very waspy Matt Damon what he's really fighting for. He said, "You know, the Cubans. We love our families. You know." Black folks love their music. It was was just sort of this ethnic stereotype. He said, what have you got? What what are you doing? And Damon says, we have the United States of America, and the rest of you are just visiting. (laughs) And it's a really profound Mm -hmm. insight. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's what we have to fight against, but that's kind of the highbrow. Yeah. You know, you see, you know what I mean. Exactly. Um, and on the music, I, I'm going to put in a plug for my neighbor, who's right over there. Uh, anything that Tim McGraw sings, I, I love. But more importantly, anything that Faith Hill sings, because that's my, you know, if I get to have a second wife, I'm aiming for Faith.
0: <laughs> I would say, as as in everything in life, we should all aim high. You know, and that. <laughs> <laughs> and and that would be aiming high that would definitely be aiming high and uh please tell neighbor tim mcgraw everyone here at the takeout says hello and wishes him all the best of luck uh and Very if good. everyone wants to be on the show uh we'll be happy to pull him put him over. in front of over. put him in front of your zoom camera uh <laughs> john it's been a great pleasure i'm serious about it six months from now let's get around uh yeah. either a zoom call or a desk or whatever and do this again my deep my appreciation pleasure. to you everyone will see you next week on the takeout thanks so much
1: I'm Mo Rocca, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day, to the things I wish would die... Like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Moraka on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.